Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. October in the garden. Wow. Can't believe we had the autumn equinox only the other night, and days are, what, the same length now? As the, the daytime is the same length That's- as the... Yeah, that's Night right. Time, and then winter is coming. <laughs> the nights are drawing in, as they that's say. It, yes, yes. Get, the, uh, get ready for that, that time of the year again. <laughs> Light the fire and sit in front of it. Yeah, indeed. Anything. Yes, that's nice, isn't it? But anyway, so what's happening in the news at the moment, Chris? I guess Chelsea's the big one, isn't it? It was, yes. And obviously, um, first time in its 108 years, it was in September, which was a bit of a revelation, wasn't it? It was, I was blown away by the mm. you know, sort of images I saw on the television um, yeah. the other night. It looks a bit more spacious there than uh, I've ever, I, I ever remember it, and I think a little bit less less busy. Do you think? Or was yeah, I think I think so. Certainly, there wasn't quite as num- large number of um, uh, exhibitors in the uh, pavilion, the, uh, okay. the the marquees there. Um, quite a lot of space for for people to walk around. Obviously, for social distancing purposes, but there was quite a lot of gaps uh, in in the proceedings which was a bit of a shame really because obviously I'm sure the RHS would have liked to have those filled with exhibitors uh, around there but of course it's a different time of the year so it's you know can you draw in exhibitors bringing in their flowers and foliage plants at that time of the year mm, I guess no, that, that was a problem but mm. it, it certainly looked mm. the gardens definitely sort of looked totally different the selection of plants that were on for being used this time wasn't it it was uh, yeah. really interesting the, sort of, the hostel were looking fabulous as mm. were the dahlias weren't they and how do you get hostas looking that good this late in the season chris i don't know how they, they did it i know there was a, a, the program on the tv covered the actual exhibitor uh, who'd taken a wonderful display but even he was uh, slightly cheated by by the weather by the sounds of it yeah because um, his main display didn't make it to the show it, did it it did but however what he did take looked absolutely amazing not a you know there wasn't a slug ridden leaf in sight it was no slug damage no. also did you hear his um secret recipe for how to keep the slugs away that's right it was it was, it was a combination of things wasn't it but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like the garlic water was, i thought that, that was, was quite good. a simple one so a couple of liters of water a few corms of garlic yes. and um, mm-hmm. mash them up and boil them and boil them. Uh, mash yes. them up a bit more and then strain it all off sounds like really simple yeah, very. And obviously, that works. And also, he had like a, a copper Brillo pad, uh, mm. which, which he I've put around. I've not seen those. No, I've never seen those before. But I use. I mean, I use, at home. I use copper tape. But yeah, yeah, copper uh, tape. I had some old electrical tape. You know mm. the grey stuff that mm. the electricians use with yes. the, the copper cable down the, the um. uninsulated copper cable. Should I say down the middle? Yeah. You just strip that out and mm. wrap that round pots, and that seems to work quite well. Superb, right. Although my strawberries still seem to manage to get eaten, but yeah. I think that's birds as well as slugs. I think, yeah, birds, that's a netting issue then, isn't it? But no, yeah, the garden certainly, I, I was just blown away by the, the palette of plants because if you think about it, you know, September is a tricky month for all of us in our gardens to get colour looking so fresh. But it was so vibrant, you know, there was so many bright colours, you know, heleniums and uh, 
beautiful uh, echinacea yep. and uh, Rebecca's. I'm thinking else. There's something else. The black eyed Susan. Black eyed Susan. Yeah, yeah Rebecca Gold, Goldstrom. I think that was. Yeah, that was uh, yeah one they week nice. which we sell lots of here, and to see them so so good, and obviously just teeming with wildlife as well on the on the TV screens. It was really encouraging. So, and of course, there's lots of grasses used. And of course, grasses come into their own at this time of the year. Yeah, because they can be really nice. I mean, no, the Japanese garden um, mm. where no, she got some sort of nice grasses in the pots. It was very, very spacious display. Mi- minimalist. Minimalist. <laughs> that's probably the way, a better word to describe it, isn't it? And yeah. But when you see plants like that silhouetted by mm. themselves, it really shows you yes. their th- sort of full potential, I suppose. Yeah. And I think probably what Chelsea always does when you're looking at those little sort of pastiches of gardens, then you say to yourself, well, actually, can I do this at home? And that's the great virtue. There might be just little... Uh, assets or little characteristics or quirks a garden designers used which you can take home and that's part of the reason why Chelsea is as popular as it is for inspiration and for ideas. Mm. Did you see the, yeah, the, the garden by James Smith the, mm-hmm. I think it was a terrace or a rooftop garden wasn't mm. it? I mean, that looked fantastic loads of nice herbs and really useful plants that would be great to sort of sit out amongst and um, no doubt nibble on or smell. Yes. Um, but how practical was it? I mean, Yeah, I mean, it was all pretty crammed, wasn't it? There was a lot of species there. And you just wonder, when they're creating these gardens, are they, you know, ticking the boxes for, for pure points, for, for prizes, you know, for their yep. awards? Or is there a practicality? My feeling is that perhaps it's a bit of a, a mixture. So sometimes, you know, with a garden, you know, less is more. And I think maybe with that garden, personally, I think it was a bit bit too over, over the top. However, you know, for some people if who are really into their gardening, it'd be fine. But for somebody new to gardening, that could be a very daunting project yeah. to look after. I think that's it. You, so I have seen gardens like that where... Like you say, the the person who's looking after it is absolutely fastidious and is mm. happy to be out there every yeah. day watering the plants and spending their time out there. But for those of us who can only maybe get out in the garden once a week mm-hmm. or yeah. Yeah. possibly spend sort of five, ten minutes watering at, at a maximum every couple of days, then it's just not practical, is it? Certainly but, not. No, I think you've got to put it on, on perspective, really. But when then you look at the more grandose gardens, which obviously Chelsea's well known for, the numbers, Peter, were a lot down to what they usually are in May. Usually we have okay. probably 10 or 12 big show gardens, and this year it was probably half that. Uh, we had a lot of artesian gardens, smaller contemporary gardens there, which we normally we have. But, uh, yeah, the big wow gardens just weren't there. And I suspect that was probably through COVID, through, through the, the sponsorship of these gardens, because most of them cost, you know, probably you're looking at maybe a quarter of a million pounds up to half a million pounds to, to put together. To put together. I, I yeah. guess so, because mm. the lumps of rock that you see yes. in them is just enormous. And you think, oh, well, it must have taken a crane or something to lift and, that in. And, just and that's it, isn't it? There's so many big, uh, you know, vehicles and, um, you know, earth moving. It is lovely, but it, I do always question sort of whether mm. it is yeah. how practical it really yeah. is for the average person yeah. like you or I to yeah. create something like that. Yeah, I mean, this whole idea of Chelsea being a bit elitist, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that at the end of the day, it is a social event. You know, it, yep. it kickstarts the social scene in the UK, usually, you know, for close the spring. For the spring, <laughs> normally. normally. But yeah. yeah, with Ascot and obviously Wimbledon. It's, it's part of the social scene. So, yes, but, um, you know, I think on the last day of, of Chelsea, they were asking sort of £80 for a ticket. You know, is that uh, a reasonable amount of money to pay to go and see a flower show on the last day? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's controversial, whatever you think. But to see it on the TV, 
and albeit in a, in a, in a more restricted way, is, is probably the next best thing. Yeah, and it is always like a, a proper spectacle. It I, is, I know yeah. it might not be for everyone, but it is mm. certainly... Oh, I love it. I think it's great, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, because the large sort of show gardens really do... I always look at them and think that they're following the sort of fashion industry and the, tre- mm-hmm. the sort of high street trends a little bit, aren't they, with their colour schemes? And I was interested to see sort of that a few years ago, all of the big monoliths and you know, sort of big stones were quite often made out of purple slate, whereas mm-hmm. now the industry is going towards black slate, and right. black slate yes, is the new purple, purple slate. <laughs> but equally, it's sort of in one of the gardens they'd painted all the woodwork black, which, yes. mm-hmm. again, you see in sort of people's gardens, and yeah. it can look really nice. But, I mean, even here, yeah. sat here where we're recording in the Malvern show buildings, yeah. Yeah. looking out the window here, there's a black shed behind us, and... Yeah. It, it, black can work really well in a garden. Makes, makes a statement, doesn't it? Definitely. Certainly. And yeah. I think it's also sort of good for framing things. Mm. And you know, like you say, it, sort of, it stands out. Mm. And you know, yeah, so, you know, but it, like, like we've discussed, it, it is following fashions. Mm. But the, you know, the large show gardens, I mean, obviously, BBC run their. RHS People's Choice Award, mm. and I, I loved it, sort of picking my winner. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which one was yours this year, Chris? Oh yes, I think um, it was. It was a it was a close call actually. I did quite like the M and G Garden. That was the one with the <laughs> the, the painted pipes, black painted pipes. Yes. There you go. Um, only because of it, I love the naturalistic sort of planting to it. It's, it was very, I don't know, quite immersive and uh, and it was sort of telling a story, but it was a backstory which you needed to know a little bit about to understand the thinking behind it. And sometimes Chelsea Gardens don't do that quite as obvious as they should. Usually yeah, a common, yeah. I mean, for me, that was not... I, I, I just like, why are, you, why are you putting urban pipe work and sort of making a, <laughs> a lovely garden ruining it with bits of metal and obviously i hadn't spent any time investigating what the story is behind it yeah and to me on the surface it just doesn't add anything to the whole scheme of the things and i would never have a garden like that in my back garden um but from an architectural point of view and an artistic point of view yeah there's definitely a story Mm. there and it is actually worthwhile understanding what they're trying to tell you by the, the, the these things most definitely. So I went, <laughs> my option was very organic. I went for the Yo Valley Organic Garden, which was okay. uh, which was designed by Tom Massey with yep. Sarah Mead. And th- it's interesting, I, I didn't realise that Yo Valley, as we know, the, the very famous uh, product which we get in our supermarkets, the yogurt. I was going to say, there's cheese makers cheese and makers, yogurt yeah. makers and yeah. sort of, yeah, far- Far- they're, they're farmers. Farmers, they? yeah. And they have got a organic garden in Somerset, in the Mendips. Okay. And what the... Uh, done basically is done a pastiche of their 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 garden which is i think six and a half acres they've brought wow. it to chelsea okay and given it a chelsea look if you like yeah, yeah. um putting in some amazing planting and lots of lovely silver birches which i love and yes of, i did see that yeah it's a nice big yeah, yeah, yeah some yeah. big plants in there weren't there there was and obviously all the, all the bits and pieces in the water and all the the things you'd expect from a chelsea garden and zinged it with lots of rebecchias and uh, nafofia red hot pokers all those plants were looking looking so good and tempting and then they'd created and i had to check on the facts on this they'd created this uh Basically, very naturalistic-looking uh, egg-shaped steam bent, yeah, steam bent oak hide, which looked like a big <gasps> egg. 
was it a swing? What I call a swing seat? Indeed. Oh, it's a very posh swing seat with a, with a glass um, glass floor. Oh wow! And that was then perched over the stream. So yeah, because it was just over the, it was up the mm. back over the stream. I mean, I, I loved the way they'd hung it and yeah. sort of hidden the the framework for mm. the for the seat. It was very brilliant good. and very very clever. very clever. And like yeah. you say, sort of nice big trees at the back and lots of lovely planting in the foreground. Yeah. So it was a, a real garden to sort of unwind. I can imagine on a hot summer's day, the, the sound of water, that lovely naturalistic planting. Gosh, it would make you so calm and collected and. What we've been going through over this last eighteen months, I think it was a perfect escape. So that, for that reason, that's why I, ch- I chose it as my my favourite. Okay, brilliant, good choice. I mean, to be fair, that was my second, um, mm-hmm. so most favourite. I think okay. to me, my my favourite this year yep. was the Bodmin Jail. Okay, uh, I just loved the way that in such a sort of small area, they've managed to create a. So much drama and mm-hmm. sort of perspective, and the fact that like the back of it was higher, and it, it just flowed well. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought I, I like the paths and the sort of little pond which the waterfall cascaded into, and obviously being very trendy, it, it had black slate rather than purple slate. Okay, <laughs> um, on trend, yes. But yeah, no, I, I, I did in, enjoy looking through all of them and seeing, working out sort of. Which one appealed mm. most to mm. me? But it, I, I think that's the best thing about gardening, isn't it? Is that it's totally personal. Yeah, and very what, subjective, isn't it? Yes. What I like might yep. not be what you like, or no, no. the garden with the, I mean, the, the, what the the Wangzhou China China garden. Mm. Yeah. To me, it's lovely, but. I just had no idea what the point of those funny wooden yes yeah, structures, like structures yeah, were. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're yeah. great and I'm sure mm. someone spent a lot of time making them. Yeah. But to me, they were a bit of a folly, weren't they? Yeah. And perhaps that's what they were meant to be—a bit of a garden folly. Maybe. In the you know in the in 2021, we need something a little bit different. And they were bamboo, um, yeah, laminated bamboo, so mm-hmm. very sustainable yep. product, which is good, you know, in sustainability. And I think all the Chelsea gardens as we know, have another life normally after the show. Some of them are, are sort of dismantled. Sometimes the plants are sold off, but often the whole garden and the, the hard landscape goes on to, to, uh, to pastures new and is rebuilt. So hopefully they'll find a use for them in their new garden. Indeed. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. That's it. Good stuff. So one of the things I noticed, you know, Chris, at Chelsea this mm. year was um, it seemed to me pretty much every single garden you saw had a water feature in it or a pond in it or some form of mm. like noise being made by water. And like you said, it, the trickling sound of water can be very relaxing. But Indeed. as a fish lover, I couldn't work out why none of the ponds had any nice fish in them. They were all devoid of all sort of water yeah. life. And yeah, it is that bit, was. it's a bit strange. I just wonder, because they're only set up sort of two weeks ago, whether there's a, a shortfall in the time. But I would have thought these days that should be sort of overcome i'm sure there are ways and means of getting the water aged water and stabilized and what have you know i I suppose maybe that's you're right that for the fish and i should imagine the number of people going through the area might be a bit sort of frightening for the fish as well possibly (laughs) yeah i did remember i'm sure a few years ago goldfish were used in a display and i think it was a mixture of one of these sort of walk through displays where it was a combination of exotic plants and they'd used i think fish tank walls to create an impression and that was a few years ago but i i stand to be corrected on that but i'm sure fish have been there i know i know garden gnomes are not allowed at chelsea but uh, (gasps) shocking yeah yeah (laughs) but i think uh, you know a humble uh, comet or a a shabunkin or a a, a koi should have a have its place there most definitely yeah excellent 
Was there anything else that caught your eye at Chelsea this year, Chris? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. I, I mean, I, I love Clematis. So when I saw okay. Raymond Everson, uh, his display, obviously the famous grower over in uh, Guernsey, uh, producing those amazing plants, which obviously we sell, most garden centres in the UK sell Raymond's Clematis. He, yep. He's a breeder of extraordinary stands, and he's produced these wonderful miniature compact patio Clematis by the by the thousand, and uh, it was good to see his display looking so so good. And also, houseplants have made quite a, an appearance, uh, haven't they? Just yeah, yeah, there's a whole stand. I mean, yeah, David Dominey created an amazing display of, of houseplants, showing how they're used um, both in the home and obviously their their health giving properties yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I saw some lovely ferns, and I mean, obviously, I know a lot of houseplants do mm-hmm. give off oxygen, and obviously, as we learnt in the orchid podcast, mm-hmm. some of them even give out oxygen at night but there was a good selection of other plants that I'd never really thought of as sort of air purification sort of mm-hmm. modules and um, it, yeah. what, what caught your eye in the house yeah, plant selection so yeah lots lots of lovely ferns things like the uh, the stag's horn fern and of course the adiantum they were they were featured quite a bit in the display as well yep. and uh, actually one of our uh, one of our main suppliers to the garden centre and to the garden centre trade uh, Givardo house plants uh, they had some amazing displays including some in, in some of the, the Malvern buildings which obviously we record our podcast in the garden centre here and they had other structures dotted around the the showground which were beautifully lit at night okay including one shall we say a little bit disco really yeah a disco at chelsea who would have thought it peter yes (laughs) but no it's, it's a bit of fun and of course because chelsea was when it was in the end of september of course it gets darker quicker so of course the visitors could actually enjoy chelsea by uh by moonlight excellent okay Brilliant. So it'll be interesting to see what what's changed to next year's sort of spring Chelsea and how the format changes again um, and all the plants no doubt change again and we'll see a whole new selection of things in a few months' time. It, look, it, look, it will be, look, be great to see it back in May, that's for sure. So is it time to save the Great British Front Garden or do we risk losing it forever? Yes, so this is a, a new report which has come out to say, which we already sort of knew, Peter, that we were losing our front gardens to drop curves and putting our cars onto our front yeah. block paving, tarmac. Yes. Oh dear, you can just hear the plants making a mass exit from our front gardens, and that's that's really sad in view of the fact that obviously in the last few years we've seen major problems with flooding. So yeah. if you put tarmac and concrete onto your front garden, that's certainly not going to absorb the amount of rainfall, the high rainfall we've been getting over the last few years as well. So yeah. where does that go? It goes down the drains and that obviously... Into the rivers and out straight out to sea. Yes. It doesn't get the chance to renew the water table, does yeah. it? And also all, uh, you think all the nature that... Mm. I mean, in my grass lawns, I always think leather jackets are all doing well in yeah. <laughs> breeding and some yeah. daisies as well they, they make a difference all, all the things yeah. that feed off my um yeah. uh, my lawn and mm. yeah at the end of the day uh, joking aside mm. everyone seems to be relying more and more on cars these days and um obviously with the advent of um, electric cars and the fact that we're is it 2030 we're meant to be indeed yes sort of losing to, yeah yep Around about that time, isn't it? So not not petrol and diesel cars, and so that's going to be an interesting time. And yeah, obviously you don't want to have cables going out into the street, no, because that's then a trip hazard, and you don't want that. So Mm. you want to bring the car in close where you can charge it next to your house. Yep. 
It's a hard one, but certainly I know thinking of um, other options other than block paving and tarmac. I mean, there's a few garden centres I've been to recently which have a sort of strip of road around their car park and then lots of gravel mm. parking spaces, which, yep. okay, it's not 100% sort of water into the ground and you know, going into the aquifers, but it's... 80, 90%. Yes. And yeah, obviously the tarmac does drain into the gravel, which mm-hmm. then drains into the mm-hmm. into the ground again. And yep. uh, obviously there's the other thing, I don't know how practical they are, but things like the comfrey lawns that obviously when you walk over them smell so lovely. Yeah. Whether there's plants that we could use like that to plant in amongst the gravel. I, I would say there is. Obviously what you could do there is where your your your, your car is going to be parked. So where the, the tyres run, you would put down a nice solid base to run those. And then in between, uh, under, under, effectively under the car and the, across each side, and if you've got more than one car, then you could do your sort of your, your alpine planting, your, your yep. calamire lawns, your alpines, your uh, aringerans, all these very good, st- you know, uh, your herbs, anything which is nice and substantial, which doesn't mind a little bit of a bit of a walking across, you know, often your thymes would work really well. So there is there is a good palette of plants which would do that. But you, the thing is, that would need quite a lot of planning and it'd be quite expensive. And that's probably going to be one of the deciding factors if people are trying to, to do this and they're probably going to try and do it as cheaply as possible. Yep. Um, perhaps they need a bit more guidance. Perhaps that's something, uh, perhaps garden centres should look at perhaps helping our customers with that, that decision if they go down that route. Well, yeah, because no, it, it is a nice long-term sustainable mm. option having a driveway that mm. you can park on, plant, uh, charge your car and also grow yep. some nice plants and get yep. some nice smells and flavours and yep. things so, like that. To yeah, certainly many years ago when I, I lived in London, I used to obviously do the walk to the station and there was lots of similar situations where, you know, certainly where a, a terraced house had enough space for actually two cars and people had done some really nice, clever planting around it and use of pots and such like. So they at least had some colour and something to bring the, the wildlife in. So it is, it is achievable, but it will take a little bit of thinking through and uh, obviously... Yeah, at the end of the day, it will take a little bit, bit, bit of money from people to um, be prepared to, 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 to pay for Invest that. Invest in. Yeah. But it, it, mm. if it makes your house look better, of course. then surely it's going to add value that most, way. So most definitely. I'm sure it's worthwhile. And the, least, and the other thing is, you know, you'll have plants, but you won't have a lawn, you know. And uh, for a lot of people, that's, you know, they can put the lawn in the back garden uh, and enjoy it there. So it's not absolutely the end of the world. That's it. Uh, so the, the next story we spotted, Peter, is that one in three trees face extinction in the wild. And this is a new report. Uh, it was on the BBC website. Okay. And uh, they're suggesting that at least 30% of the world's tree species face extinction in the wild. And that includes things like oaks uh, and magnolias to tropical timber trees. This is really quite worrying. Mm, it's a huge number, isn't it? I mean, you, know, you always hear sort of stories of like, the Amazon and mm. um, how all the trees are being cut down for farming and uh, making more space for growing crops and, and cows and mm. things like that. But you don't really think of it in this country. And the fact that I'd never even come across the, the thought that, yeah, no, our, our native trees are suffering. Yeah. And um, I suppose there's obviously diseases and mm. um, so things like Dutch elm disease. Well, that was back in the 70s, wasn't it? Was it, it? Was it 60s now, and 70s, yeah. Yep. Now, I suppose, things like Vitophora mm. and... Um, yeah. Dash die back, I suppose. Yes, yeah, which yeah. are the worried ones. But it's interesting. I mean, the, um, I mean, as you'd expect, the report says that half of the Amazon trees are are, are facing the, the issues, but uh, and ash trees across Europe are, are going to disappear. Which obviously, that is worrying because I mean, in this country, there's over seventy million 
ash trees around. And if you think about the, the large areas, that's more than there was elm trees wow. going back. So that's going to make some big, big scars there. And it's interesting, you know, quickly mentioning the Chelsea Flower Show, they, the big um, tree planting campaign uh, organised by the government effectively and the, and the Queen, yep. that got its sort of, uh, sort of send-off. It's got its sign-off to, to be promoted. So that was a good thing. So hopefully, as we're coming into tree planting time over the next, you know, well, all through the bare root season and beyond, we can look a bit more at, uh, at our own trees and may it be an opportunity to start planting some more th- this winter. What a good idea. And yeah, like you say, sort of, obviously winter's great to get cheaper mm. options for bare root trees. Mm, indeed. It's so much cheaper and I mean, it's easier to plant, but they're, they're, I think they are. They're a bit smaller hole to dig. <laughs> smaller hole, and you can have, I don't think the secret's going to be, isn't it, to have more... Yes, and also, um, you know, there's so many other factors, you know, concerning trees now. I mean, one in five species are, of trees are used by humans uh, for food, uh, obviously for timber, medicine and, and more. So it's even more vital that we keep those momentum up for, for planting trees, you know, wherever we can. And uh, yeah, w- whether the species are native and this idea, of course, with, with trees to actually plant uh, not monoculture. So don't go for the same variety. If you've got a, yep. a bit of land, go for diversity. Well, certainly, it's always nice when you go into a mixed wood, mm. sort of a broadleaf woodland, and it's so much better. I, I love the smell of pine forests and yes. sort of Nor- Norway spruce and things like that. I mean, it is nice to go through those sort of you know, forests, but equally, when you get to see mm. like bluebells in a wood, yeah. and they're generally in in mixed native woodlands and yeah, the beech trees, and mm. um, just thinking sort of all the fun times you have as a youngster picking up like beech nuts or Mm, conkers and things like that and and talking of conkers chris um there's a there's a little story behind conkers there is yes so uh, (laughs) the paradox is that we're we're into the good old spider season now we have been for the last sort of month or so i think spiders have been everywhere this year i mean certainly this summer i've i don't think i've ever pulled off as many cobwebs off my garden furniture as (laughs) i have done this year and i know i was was watering my plants in in my garden the other night and you know when you walk through a spider's web it's it's a bit a bit unnerving especially when you see the the female at the the corner of your eye (laughs) bouncing around on the web waiting for her supper (laughs) yes but of course they're coming into our homes uh for warmth and obviously uh to 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 get food and to, to mate and to start their youngsters off so it's how to deter those good old spiders and of course uh, you mentioned conkers that's a bit of a, a bit of folklore but apparently if you have some conkers which you've removed from the shell and they're nice and shiny and you're not going to have a conker a conker competition with them you're right. not going to put them in the oven or put them in vinegar to, to harden <laughs> going back to my childhood here yeah. um, then you would put them on your window ledge and apparently apparently according to folklore that deters them have you okay. heard yes, have you heard that, Peter? I, I have heard it. Well, yes. I don't know whether it works. So no. I guess if any of our listeners out there have tried it mm. and yes. it does work or it doesn't work, please let yeah. us know so we don't waste our time or no. we do start doing it. Because <laughs> I know Abington Park, um, my local dog walking park, mm-hmm. it's got lots of conquer trees. There's a whole mm-hmm. avenue and mm-hmm. it's lovely this time of the year. Um, yeah. You go down and you see all the children yes. picking up the mm. conkers. And they, I, I love the sort of... 
the shine on the conker when yes. it's just come out of its shell and it's, it's and, so and even and even the seed pod as it's quite spiky isn't oh, it it's yeah, got, it's got, it's got yeah, yeah it's quite things, yeah it's fantastic they? it's almost alien isn't it when you yeah. look at it and also yeah i mean if any of our uh, our followers have any suggestions about keeping spiders out of the house that you know yes. other than conkers that would be quite interesting as well any other folk tales that actually work that would yeah. be really useful yeah, that would be good thank you so northampton i say last year i think maybe last year and the year before um, the council have very kindly changed all of the old sodium street lighting into LED street lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, in my street, it's um, I say it's all, it's lighter, it's brighter, mm-hmm. yeah. and obviously uses less energy, which I guess is good for the planet, but it's not good for the moths, is it? No. So we've got this sort of movement now from uh, from sodium now to LED lights, so which obviously are brighter, and that's obviously having a big impact on the uh, the, the population, and of course that's interfering with their whole process of, of breeding too. So I think it is a bit worrying, and uh, you know, when you look at the, 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 the stats and uh, that the population of moths has dropped by over a third in 50 years... Yeah, that's a that is a lot, isn't it? And I think moths get a bit of a bit of bad press because you tend to we tend not to see moths apart from the night time. Yeah. Um, and you know you, you know you, you know they're there. Um, but interestingly, unlike butterflies, when they land, um, butterflies generally bring their their wings in. Moths, when you see them out, always have their wings outstretched. Okay. That's quite characteristic yeah. of, a, of a moth so if you're undecided to whether the moths are, are good but uh, interesting there's been lots of obviously um, research on to the different types and we found that uh, anecdotally local to, to the garden center here it's very easy to get quite captivated by uh, moth watching and yep. of course by setting up a nice uh, uh, moth trap yep. which again uses light but in a good way you're going to release these moths once you've identified them maybe photograph them and it's a good way of again connecting with nature we talk about you know going on butterfly hunts and things and, uh, yep. and such like so why not uh, have a look at that so moth, moth hunt moth hunter, I, yes. I, I always think they're great for bats because mm. you see the bats flying around I know my house I grew up in is in the front garden we always used to get bats flying around and I think they were always feeding on mm. insects and things like moths flying around. So yeah. they they go past the food chain. So yeah, yeah it's obviously going to have a big impact on the yeah. animals that feed on them as well as not being able to see them. exactly. Of course, that's the, you know, they are a vital part of the food chain. At the end of the day, yeah, you obviously birds and animals, mammals and things will eat moths too. So as gardeners, I think we should perhaps just a it's just a reminder that when we're planting our gardens, to think about good moth food. Have yeah. good good facilities there. Because um, presumably they're pollinators in the same way butterflies are. They are, um, yes. Yeah. No, so they're part of the pollinators of mm. the world. And they tend to be attracted by night-scented plants. So a lot of okay. plants that flowers open. Um, I'm growing um, a few datura this year in my garden, and okay. they attract certain types of moths. I haven't seen them yet. I am looking okay. in the evening. I'm going to try and capture them on camera if I can. But again, they have quite specific. And of course, uh, I know cacti in the desert have certain moths which come in. And we, as we know, hummingbirds go to, to cacti flowers. But it's the moths which actually pollinate the flowers. Wow. So they're, they're in a very short window of pollination the flowers open at night when they know they're going to get pollinated by the moths so yeah so it's all quite clever but on the on the uh, the podcast show notes we'll put a link to a a, um, a little uh, piece of information a leaflet we've created and also it gives some indication of some of the plants you might want to think about putting in your garden to be more moth friendly excellent 
So what's actually going on this month, then, Ooh, Chris? We've got quite a lot, Peter. So uh, from the top, then we've got uh, we're into the seed gathering season, which yep. started actually at the, the latter end of September. It runs right through to the twenty third. So it's an official. It's one of these awareness days where we try and promote the idea of saving seeds. Okay. Now a lot of people might save their you know broad beans or runner beans or some of their flower seeds. Um, yep. I, I collect all my honesty seeds, and uh, I've got some calendulas I'm collecting this year from my plants. So. Mm. Okay. Yes, go out there in the you know obviously in the wild you've got to be a little bit careful what you collect obviously there are, there are rules and regulations for that but yep. in your own garden you can obviously save away i think the most important thing with seed saving is make sure the seeds are dry so let them dry out nicely yep. um, lift them you know take them from the plant put them on a, a bit of uh, blotting paper or a bit of uh, tissue uh, kitchen, kitchen roll, roll, roll and yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then when they're nice and dry then obviously store them in a little sealed container i remember when we used to have 35 mil uh, camera uh, film yeah, yeah the little black yeah but they rope. they were great of course uh, but yeah. if, if you can get yourself some little envelopes and, and then obviously put a name on them put a date on them so you know exactly when you collected them and what's on there and then store them in a nice cool dry place and then you're ready yeah because something that I'd, I mean, a few years ago i used to collect my um runner bean mm. seeds and i always uh, historically have grown enorma oh yeah yeah the good variety. always thought Enormous yeah. every year. I, I always try and grow two varieties, and I've yet to find one that's as good in, as mm-hmm. Norma. However, my father told me there's no point collecting those seeds because Enorma's a F1 hybrid. Mm-hmm. Therefore, as soon as you cross it with another broad bean, it's not Enorma. <laughs> it's not Enorma. So I'm, yeah. the, the, uh, I was like, oh. gave up connecting seeds but yeah yeah, yeah. to be honest with you i think that's true with a lot of um Mm. hybridized yeah, so you got you got F one hybrids, yeah, yeah F one hybrids, and then you've got what they call open pollinated. The open pollinated varieties you can save. So okay, uh, so if they're, if they're not going to an F one hybrid on the label when you buy it or on the uh, the seed packet, you can save it from those. So brilliant. Uh, and it's also International Coffee Day, isn't it? So yes. all you budding baristas out there, mm, rejoice! You, yes, that's <laughs> it. When, when's that? Yeah, first of October. So okay. first of the month, and uh, basically, yeah, we're celebrating. And of course, obviously, you know, we know coffee and coffee grounds have a, quite a good horticultural link, don't they? We we, we use yes, them a lot. Quite a lot of uses for coffee grounds, aren't mm. there? And um, any customers or listeners local to us that want free coffee grounds, um, obviously. We create quite a few from the coffee machine here. Please just come into the restaurant and ask, and mm. bring us a bag and or a pot, and we'll fill it up with yep. used grounds for you. And, and what can you use them for, Chris? Yeah, so you've got to be care- careful how much you use. If you use too much around your plants for deterring slugs, say, yep. um, you will change the uh, soil's um, acidity, so you'll make the soil a bit more acid. Yep. So you need to be careful there, but certainly putting small amounts around where your, your, your hostas are coming through in the spring, your delphiniums, all your very vulnerable plants, and obviously plants on your veg plot be good. This year I'm going to try, and I will be trying as I put my tulips in in the next few weeks, uh, putting some uh, coffee grounds around my tulip bulbs to to other other furry friends from uh, taking and robbing my my lovely... (laughs) tulip display which they did last year so yeah so i'm going to use that so it has yeah dual usage as a as a, an insecticide stroke pesticide slug deterrent just slug deterrent <laughs> and maybe soil acidifier as well but to use them sparingly i think that's the that's the key so just thinking a little bit more about that chris if the coffee grounds are acidifying the soil are they going to be good for like putting around your rhododendrons yeah i think 
small quantities wouldn't do any harm at all, especially if your soil is a little bit on the alkaline side. You're sort of edging your bets where you're growing your plants, and certainly around your Japanese maples. Yes. Well, what about hydrangeas? I mean, is yeah, hydrangeas. Yeah, if you want to keep the color. color. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed, they'd be perfect. Yeah, so pyrus, camellias, uh, yeah, rhododendrons, and obviously your, your azaleas too. So, uh, but sparingly, shall we say? Okay. And you're doing a masterclass, aren't you, as well, Chris? Yeah, on, on the 6th, uh, Wednesday the 6th, we're going to be looking at trees, shrubs and hedges for smaller gardens. Okay. So we're looking at, yeah, as gardens are getting smaller or as people are moving to properties where their garden is, is less uh, adventurous as far perhaps as it used to be to what you could put in there, I'm going to be looking at the options uh, for, for smaller spaces. So um, it's always Brilliant. a, a and it's a great opportunity to obviously talk about autumn planting as well. So I look forward to that. That's before o'clock in the, uh, in the restaurant there. And we do obviously suggest that uh, our customers, if they're coming along, do, you know, book a seat to, uh, to secure a, se- yeah, uh, a the, seat. The, the masterclasses are free, but yes, yeah, obviously indeed. limited spaces. So yes, please indeed. let us know and then we can advise you if uh, we think we're going to be sold out. Indeed, yeah. So I've been looking forward to that and it's always a good talk because it's uh, it's something where, where you can interact with so many ideas and obviously the, the range of trees for smaller gardens and, and, and shrubs these days is so wide so there's plenty of choice. Brilliant. And Apple Day, I mean, we we, mm. we always celebrate Apple Day here and we yes. do Apple and Honey Weekend. Yes. Um, yeah, because we've already had Apple and Honey Weekend um, but the official mm. date is the... 21st of October it is yes and um that's that was the date initiated by common ground back in uh, 1990 so this this event has been going you know some yeah 30 yeah 31 years hasn't it so mm, it's, it's I know, been, you know. we've been doing it an awfully long time mm. it seems now and, yes um, yeah it, it's interesting because i think when we first got involved with it it was over in Solgrave, i think Solgrave manor mm. we, yeah because Solgrave manor was um home of george washington and mm. that's where I can remember going and to their first Apple weekends, and then um, I think they dropped it, and we took over mm. or carried on doing sort of our Apple displays. And mm. it always amazes me. I, I know there are hundreds of varieties of yeah. apples, but yeah. when you actually come and see the displays mm. that we put on, and yes. you've got like 50, 60 different types of yeah. apple out on display, and you see there are. They are, yeah. Well, there's, so there's, there's two, I think there's two and a half thousand varieties, yeah, grown in the UK. So two and a half thousand. And at our recent Apple Weekend, we had over a hundred this yep. year. So, yeah, pretty good. And that includes things like you know your crab apples too. So, yeah, and it's just a celebration. It was the, the whole reason for it was to basically uh, sort of the symbol of how you know the uh, the apple is to us. It is the most probably the most popular fruits, probably the easiest to grow of, of all the fruits, and it's so diverse in what you can do with it. You know, in in the kitchen. So, for that reason, yeah, and of course you can use it for uh, for other other purposes. And what's your f- most favourite apple to eat, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I must admit, I do like scrumptiouses, which is a one which I've got in my own garden. They're very okay. small this year. Yeah, uh, the weather hasn't helped with those, but they are a really nice one. But you know, a nice Bramley in an apple pie. I'm sorry. I think yeah, I totally agree yeah. with you. Yeah. It, to to yeah. me, Bramleys yeah. in that are the apple for cooking mm. with, and yeah. I, I always love a sweet apple pie, mm. which um, yeah. is the antithesis of my mother's idea of what an apple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She has a like tart apple yes, tart, pie yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, for me i mean it's always been egremont russet yes yeah i think yeah, as an eater yeah. Agri- mm. a nice egremont russet the skin can sometimes be a little bit tougher mm. but 
the flavour yeah. of a good yeah, Egremont yeah, russet. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. love them. Yeah, I mean, Discovery um, It's one I, I used to grow in my, my, my previous garden. That was always very reliable. I think the thing is, you want a variety which is going to do well, yep. and it's not going to take too much space. And, of course, if you've not got the space, it's just having space for one tree. So, yeah, Cox is self-fertile would be the one to go for there, or a, or maybe a Scrumptious, because that's self-fertile too. So you've got the best of, of both worlds, good, good flavour and uh, and something easy. And, of course, in these days, we've got varieties on, on dwarfing rootstocks, so you don't need a huge garden. Yeah, and the family well. apple tree. Yes, that, so you can have. A, I remember giving one of those to a friend um, mm. for their wedding present, and he was blown away. He's like, "You get four different types of apple <laughs> off one tree." Is like, yeah. yeah. You can, but they take a bit more effort pruning, don't they? Yes. Because yeah. you've got to make sure that one doesn't sort of become the leader and take out all mm. the energy out of the tree. But yeah, yeah. If you, if you look after them, they can be really good. They can, and so certainly a talking point in your garden. That's for, that's for sure. So, Chris, what should we be doing? What are the tasks oh, we need to be getting on with for the, there's, October? There's, there's a few. Some of them are more enjoyable than others, but the first one is very nice, and that's to go and enjoy our wonderful woodland and forests yeah. and enjoy and embrace that awesome colour out there. Which yeah, is, the leaves are yellowing and mm, going red. and it's Yes, it's good. It's a good time of the year, isn't it, for those autumn walks. And, of course, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many good places to go and see. And, uh, you know, lots of the National Trust places in the UK are, usually have some amazing established woodland. Um, and, and, you know, some of the amazing sort of uh, beach beach woods as well start to look really good. Yep. And certainly one I, well, a couple of places I've seen which uh, I have been blown away wise is Stourhead over in Wiltshire. That's a national trust that has some amazing, because um, it, it's got lots of water. It's a capability brown creation. Okay. Yep. So you can imagine these amazing sort of tapestries of colour in the, in the, on the horizon. They yep. look really good. And of course, uh, good arboretums. I mean, I, Batsford is really good over in, uh, in, in the Cotswolds yep. to us here. And that's a, a really good place to escape and see some really good autumn colour. But uh, yeah, and even just a walk in your own local woods is always, you know, very refreshing. And uh, of course, you get all this wonderful leaf mould, which, of course, is derived from those fallen leaves. Yeah, because that makes really good compost, doesn't it, from memory? It does, yeah. I mean, leaf mould can take a while to, to break down. It's a two-year job right. really, to break down. Um, and some leaves are better than others. Um, certainly, uh, you, you know, certain things like hornbeam and beech and oak will make the best uh, leaf mould but they will take some time and how you do it i mean if you've got a small garden get yourself some nice uh, robust sort of black bin liners yep. prod some holes with a fork and then just fill the bag about halfway with the, the leaf mould seal it pop it in part of the garden which is out of the way you can't see it and leave it basically to to ferment right and after two years you'll be able to open that and hopefully um, it'll have broken down to a point where you can actually use that as a a compost additive so you can mix your own compost good old monty uses quite a lot of leaf mold in his compost uh, on gardener's world but there's no reason why you can't you know put it into your own compost mixes well, i was gonna say I, I i always thought you just piled your leaves up on your compost heap and it created just another layer of goodness to sort of break down and yeah the, the, but, yes i think if you're gonna if you've got a lot of leaves uh, best creator yeah get some chicken wire and uh, put some posts and create your own uh, leaf mould heap right because I think the problem is if you put them into your normal compost heap because it takes so long to break down that'll interfere with your faster maturing okay. uh, compost additive so I'm always a little bit reluctant to add it to um, my normal compost you do it as a separate uh, project see Chris you're doing it all wrong 
If you've got a compost heap like mine, where you <laughs> chuck branches and all sorts in there, yeah. two years is just about getting to the point where it's, it's starting to break down <laughs> enough that you can think, oh, that'd be good Maybe. compost in a year or two. Oh, so. okay. All right. Oh, well, there we go. I take your point. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, you can make compost in sort of three to six months and make very yes. good compost Supposedly, in a season. I, I, it does take um, a while, as we all know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think if, you, yeah. if, you're, if you're a bit more... Slow moving and um, <laughs> not in such a rush, yeah, then yeah, yeah. chuck it on your compost heap. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's worth, and also if you're in an area of the UK or you're listening, obviously, where you've got very uh, acidic plants, so you've yep. got your pine trees, we mentioned pine trees earlier, yep. and all your, your rhododendrons, azaleas, your pyrus, and you collect all those, then of course you're going to make some amazing acid uh, loving leaf mold. So, is that how you make ericaceous compost? Yeah, you're part way there. Yes, it's one of the main ingredients. Yes. I never thought of that. Yes, How interesting. So, so uh, yeah, so you, you can do that. So yeah, if you're in that area, then obviously use that. But obviously, don't mix them both because if you mix them up, you can only then use it really for your for your ericaceous plants. Good point. And you just see so in the garden centre, we've got autumn lawn food in. Mm. It must be time to start feeding. Yes. A few things now. Yeah, I suppose it's that time of the year when we're, we're giving our uh, lawn a little bit of a, a bit of a TLC, perhaps scarifying it and, and uh, obviously raking and uh, doing a bit of aeration to try and get some air in there. But yes, um, as it's been you know quite a reasonable autumn, you know rain-wise, hopefully there won't be too much moss to, to kill. I seem to remember that autumn lawn foods sort of got lots of. Potassium, potassium for yes. the roots, mm. um, so it's sort of helping the root root growth. You don't want the high nitrogen feed That's of correct. the summer summer yeah. foods because that that obviously makes the top half grow. Whereas what we're looking for now is to fortify the mm. roots to, and to get some you know, nice get, strong roots for the winter, basically to put those in place. But uh, if you go for something like the you know the miracle, you know, miracle Crow evergreen autumn lawn food that does have a little bit of ferrous sulfate so that will control your your moss That'll as well get rid of the moss and yeah, has it well. got anything for the clover uh from the top of my head i don't think it's just purely a feed and a, and a, and a moss killer so okay. yeah so it does that um yeah it's probably getting a little bit late probably to kill a lot of your weeds now because of course they they're probably starting to die back anyway and of course we know with weeds they need to be an active growth for the for the um uh, for the herbicide to work effectively but uh, yeah getting on obviously follow the instructions carefully i liked with my lawn when i had a lawn i usually cut it live it four or five days and then i'd put the lawn food on and then obviously make sure there's plenty of moisture around hopefully our heavy dew falls we're getting now this time of the year is, is sufficient but you might have to irrigate if we have a dry spell because yep. you don't want to be scorching your lawn and then hopefully you'll start to see some benefits through the through the winter a nice strong sward which will obviously um come better and give you a much better effect next spring brilliant good idea we've just heard in our previous podcast mm. ian clark from taylor's um talking us through bulbs mm. we've got obviously still time left to, to oh, plant gosh, some bulbs yeah. haven't we yes so um i mean one thing we, we do like to do with bulbs is, is sometimes stagger the planting and certainly if you're wanting hyacinths for christmas you really need to get a move on with those it's probably going to be hyacinths for new year now probably yep. <laughs> but uh, as we sort of mentioned in in the previous podcast yeah you know your, your tulips can go in this month onwards now it's now a little bit cooler um, and the reason, we obviously, we, we say about not planting tulips too early is two things. Sometimes they can produce lots of top growth, which can get, obviously, uh, affected by frost. But more to the point, you can encourage a, a disease uh, called, uh, one of, it's one of the fire, uh, the, the tulip fire streak uh, virus can affect the, the, okay. the plants. So for that reason as well, it's better to, to delay your, your planting your tulips into, into October and even into November. So we've got plenty of time to get those in. 
And uh, of course, yeah, it's still time to do your containers. I know the the pots have been looking really good with this bit of nice sunshine we've had this autumn. So yeah, maybe think about getting those pots converted over to some some uh, spring colour as well with uh, with winter pansies and uh, obviously the other bits and pieces you tend to put in your, your baskets at this time of year. Uh, you know, ivies and. Uh, heathers and similar plants to give you a bit of a nice inspirational colour for the winter too and obviously add a few bulbs in the the spaces you have in those uh, containers brilliant that's a good idea yeah because we've got a lovely display as you come into the shop and uh, with bulbs and sort mm. of house do a lasagna planting yeah we, we have now really yes impressed yeah. by that. that's quite, yeah, quite good and obviously yeah like i say if you haven't come across this idea either listen to the previous podcast or mm. have a look on the show notes for us and there's some good links into Yes, a nice, nice little video from uh, from Taylor's bulbs on there to how how to do one uh, one of the lasagna pots. Very easy, very Brilliant. very satisfying. Good stuff. Yeah, because just thinking about the slug deterrent, it's mm. um, that time of year to start planting garlic, isn't it? It is. Yes, yeah. So that's garlic, um, and you've got your shallots and your onions, all that range of of bulbous plants which obviously need to get away in in soil which is reasonably warm so it's quite important so make sure you've you've prepped your soil make sure it's well worked not too open not too loose because of course you'll get the the better bulls from more compacted soil and of course when it comes to garlic it's always a good idea to you know break the obviously break the bulbs into the individual cloves and then when you plant them use a trowel or a, a, a bull planter to yeah so you're not actually damaging the the base of the the uh the, the bulb as you push it in okay uh, it's got quite it can be quite uh, fragile so right. give them the best possible start and of course with your your onions you just sort of barely so they just sort of disappear so the very tips of the plants can be seen and fingers crossed they'll start growing within probably a week 10 days they'll get some roots down and uh, hopefully the birds won't try and pull them out which sometimes, sometimes happens yeah. um so give yourself that and then obviously make sure they're they're given a good water in if, if it's dry and then you're off then you, you're making a nice early start so you'll be hopefully gathering some onions by um, well hopefully by the beginning of july if not earlier yeah, because I've already seen, um, you know, so you wake up in the morning and looking across the valley, the mist starting oh, to yes. settle, and oh. I guess that means not long till frosts yes. and oh. winter setting in, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it's such a shame, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, things like mechanism, my dahlias are looking so good, you know, and you just know that Jack Frost is literally knocking on the door. And, yeah, uh, as yes. soon as he turns up, they'll yeah. all be turning upside down. Right they now. will, and yeah, the, yeah. so with, with dahlias, yeah, let, let Jack Frost do its work. Black, let it blacken the leaves. Um, okay. I always think, let you know, because it's usually well into into this month and sometimes early into next month, into November, before you get that hard frost which knocks the plants back. And then obviously you want to lift the plants and then if you can, if you've got a, a, a shed or somewhere nice and bright where you've got some air circulating, lift the, the tubers, dry the tubers off a little bit to get rid of all the, the soil around them and then store them, obviously. Well, you could store them in all sorts of things. I mean, people sometimes use shredded paper, uh, Peat yep. uh, or, pe- or a, a compost, um, something dry, dry, just yeah. Air, it's sort of lots of air, so yeah. it's not going to rust and it yeah. keeps the air moving around them. And make sure you put a label on to identify your varieties, especially dahlias. Yeah. Um, with canners, just I mean canners, I just bring in. I come, there comes a point where they, you just know they're going to be, to be lost. Bring those in. Uh, I just basically put mine on their side, so they, if they're in pots, if I've had them in pots, put them on the side. If they're in nice decorative containers, they're in big, uh, um, you know, de- glaze pots and things. Yep. You can't do that. Just withhold watering. So let them naturally die back, and I leave them in situ then until February. Then I usually lift them out, 
divide them and then restart them into growth. So daily, I mean, dahlias and uh, cannas are probably, if you've got bananas and they are not staying in the garden, you're not going to be lagging them for the winter, then you probably need to be bringing those into a, a greenhouse and somewhere which is obviously frost-free. You need yeah. probably about f- you need probably four or five degrees above, uh, above freezing to keep those alive. I'm just thinking, Chris, with bananas, can you bring them, if you've got a conservatory or an orangery or sort of somewhere warm and bright in the house and enough space, <laughs> um, yeah. can, can you bring them inside? You could do. I mean, there's no reason. If, if it's not, I mean, Musa, Cavendishii and Basu, those are the two sort of what they call the hardier ones. If, yep. you, if you're growing something which is not either of those two, then, yeah, a conservatory or a nice warm greenhouse... Um, would be perfect actually okay. and uh, yeah make sure they're in a decent sized pot of course a pot which you can easily handle inside uh, your structure and just keep them barely moist don't overwater them right um and that means the plants should keep because as you probably know with bananas they are herbaceous perennials yep. they're full of water and um if you keep them too wet and that really applies if you if you're overwintering your your more hardier ones keep them on the drier regime if anything and fingers crossed they'll come through and Yes, in the winter they'll probably carry on growing, albeit slowly. slowly. But yeah, but you might then obviously initiate potential flower and then you might initiate some fruits. And it has been known over the winter for them to go through that sort of process. So when you put the plants out in May, June next year, then they go on to produce a crop. <laughs> that would be yes, nice, wouldn't it? It would. Bunch yes. of bananas off your own tree. Fantastic. <laughs> And plants that are sort of semi-hardy, I suppose mm. you call them, what things like cordelines and some of the, some of the palms, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah carpus. If you're going to leave those outside, no, I, mm. I seem to remember that we've got fleece jackets. I think they're yes, called, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, um, I think it's a company called Hacksnicks uh, sell those, and they're really good. So they're basically like a yeah, like like a jacket or a, a big sock, basically. You pull I always think they're like a big dustbin bag that may <laughs> yes, have fleece yeah. and sort of tie them off at the bottom around the plant, and it just gives the plants a little bit more protection against the cold and yeah. um, harsh far, winds. Yeah, I was going to say, Peter, it's far better to use one of those than often people tie the. The cord lines up, and then they put. Okay. So they put. They then wrap the 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 horticultural fleece on a roll around it. I think that's that's a bit cumbersome. And of course, you, you're basically squashing the the the, the leaves too. So yep. yeah, fleece jackets. But then of course, you can use horticultural fleece in your greenhouse to to cover your, your plants, which you're you're overwintering as well. So if you've got okay. some uh, you know fuchsias and things, and you're just keeping your greenhouse frost free, then of course that layer of um, uh, horticultural fleece will just raise the temperature by by a degree or two enough to keep the plants hopefully safe and sound and presumably you can use that on things like your onions down on the allotment mm. um, to, if you want to really get them growing faster than your neighbours if you've got one of those sort of uh, little cloches that mm-hmm. you can cover in it they're not cloches are they they're Cloche hoops, Cloche should hoops. I call them? Yeah. Um, the, the sort of U-shaped hoops that you can put, and then you can create a little sort of nice little warmer, in, mm. sheltered environment for. I the, think um, that that product. I think there is it Environmesh because they have different yes. grades, don't they? So Environmesh will be the one to go for where you're going to try and give a little bit of protection and obviously keep some of the pests out too. So and that'll act as a bit of a greenhouse uh, effect so, too. Help protect the plants, but get them mm. growing a bit earlier yeah. as well. Indeed, but please, please don't use. I mean, the, 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 the tales when people use bubble wrap around plants and things. Uh, I, it, I do shudder. It's just not good. It just basically what happens. Of course, it 
you get condensation. The I was plants going to say they sweat. Don't they, they sweat, yeah. and of course that freezes on a cold night, and you yeah. just know it's all going to end very, very badly. So uh, yeah, keep if you're going to use um, bubble uh, wrap's but, great for insulating greenhouses. Yes, uh, perfect. It's designed for yeah, so, yeah. or insulating <laughs> your pots as well. If you use it around the side of your pots, if okay, you, it's absolutely fine. If you've got some expensive uh, terracotta pots, which you are trying to preserve, even though they may be sold as you know frost free uh, frost frost resistant that's the word um but putting some of the your larger grade um bubble wrap around won't do any harm as long as you don't uh, impinge on the the drainage yeah that's absolutely fine and uh, good idea uh, yeah I've, I've done that with a couple of my more expensive pots and it's uh, it's paid off brilliant so we've got a couple of really interesting podcasts coming up, haven't we, Chris? We've got the first one, well, we're jumping off our usual schedule and we've got an extra show for you. So if, if you want to understand a bit more about cider making, then have a listen to our show next week. And then following on from that, we've got an interview with Mike Jones on... Creating an orchard and everything you need to know about setting up fruit trees in your own garden. Yeah, it's a really interesting. I mean, yeah. originally we'd scheduled it as one show, but Mike mm. is just so oh, knowledgeable. He goes so enthusiastic, and of course, uh, it's all from his own experience. And it, you know, he's, he's got obviously many years of experience growing and producing his, his wonderful cider too. So it's, yeah. it's, it's it's enthusing, and yes, you'll want to go out and plant some apple trees after after listening. That's for sure. Definitely, and please, listeners, if you've got any questions for us about planting fruit or cider making, please, please send them in on email or post them on our social media accounts, and we'd love to hear from you, and hopefully we'll be able to answer your questions. And I'll say likewise, Peter, if anybody's got any questions on, on general gardening uh, things they need to know the answer to, whether it's a little bit of advice on growing a particular plant or if they've got a, a pest or disease... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can send a, 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 some information, maybe a photo of the of the offending <laughs> pest and disease, or, or the plant you want to identify. And we'll do our best to uh, to answer your questions. Yeah, that'd be really good to hear from you as well. Brilliant. Well, thanks for all your help um, with what we should be doing in October, Chris. Pleasure, Peter. Speak soon. Yeah, see you now. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital, to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.